0: A Podcast One production. In late February of 2020... The biggest news in Australia was the sudden collapse of Holden, the nation's oldest automobile manufacturer. And more than that, at 164 years, one of the oldest firms in Australia. GM had finally pulled the plug.
1: Ironically, right when the world supply chain shut down and demonstrate what Homeland Security is actually about. I mean, let's hope everyone has a chunky supply of parts handy, right? Imagine what functioning Ford and GM slash Holden plants armed with world-class Aussie engineering could be doing right now for COVID-19 supply issues. I mean, if you just think about the UK firm Dyson, it's a company originally innovating in vacuum cleaners, but continuing to invent and make new appliances. And they just whipped up a new ventilator in record time. Like companies can innovate and prototype more quickly when they have manufacturing at their fingertips the Australian government seems intent on moving Aussie manufacturing far out of reach for Aussie inventors. I'm so frustrated right now. I truly believe if Australia had the manufacturing teeth we once had, this sudden need for fast, innovative thinking and doing would be a massive opportunity to showcase our talent and capabilities. But alas, boys, The car industry is completely down the gurgler and it takes with it a wealth of knowledge and experience that could have been repurposed for all kinds of new innovative technology unless someone has the vision to wheel that GM plant around and make it the epicentre of Australian experimentation. I mean, don't start me, except you did.
2: Sorry, Sal, I, I guess I did. Drew? That was then. This is now, and you could be forgiven that the industry has actually seen all of this before. It was only in the wake of the global financial crisis back around 2009 that the big car makers went cap in hand on private jets in America to ask governments to bail them out. But this time it feels different. The French government is promising stimulus, but only if manufacturers radically revisit their product lines and business models to make them more sustainable. In Berlin, politicians are turning their backs on handouts to help consumers buy cars in favour of handouts that stimulate all sectors of the economy equally.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Drew, do you mean that what's good for VW is no longer
2: good for Germany? Um, nine. In London, New York, and many other cities besides, authorities are seizing the opportunity to make their streets even more inhospitable to drivers, boosting the provision of space for active transit, that is, walking and cycling. And in the middle of it, car makers don't know whether they're coming or going. Sales are rebounding in China as consumers make what are becoming known as revenge purchases, the kind of hectic spend you undertake when you've been cooped up with your mother-in-law for months on end. But as we face into what may become the greatest economic calamity of the 21st century, the picture in the West is less clear. This time, will the industry take the opportunity to reform and reshape itself, or will it continue to pray for a return to normal, whatever that word now means? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. And I'm Drew Smith.
1: And I'm Sally Dominguez.
0: And on this episode of The Next Billion Cars, we're going to take a look at where
2: we are right now. In the midst of a global pandemic. And ask if there's any future at all for transportation as we've always known it. Because
0: the new normal isn't anything like any normal we've ever known. The future, or what's left of it, on this special episode of The Next Billion Cars. Since we released the last episode of The Next Billion Cars, a lot has happened. Too much, really. So it's a great pleasure and a great comfort to welcome back series host Sally Dominguez.
1: G'day, Mark. How exciting to see it's not a backflip, but it's definitely a sideways wheelie that the car industry is doing in the middle of COVID-19 global meltdown.
0: And of course, Sal and I are joined by special correspondent Drew Smith.
2: I think I've been spending a little too much time in lockdown here in London, because this time around, I'm rhapsodizing about a Renault MPV. I can't wait. And I've got a few things to add about what it is meant to buy my own set
0: of wheels during the pandemic.
2: Over to you, Drew. The year was 1998, and I just landed at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. Having convinced my folks to let me live in France for six months, I'd soon be bunking down with the Cordurier Giffords on the wooded outskirts of Rouen, a regional city in the heart of Normandy. The Cordurier Giffords were the archetypal bourgeois family. This meant that Francois, the father, drove a brand new Peugeot 406, Mai Tai, the mother, a Renault Espace. And it was the Espace that I fell in love with. It's a love affair that continues to this day, and weirdly, it's a love affair that's being intensified by COVID. So what, pray tell, is the relationship between COVID and a Renault? Well, the Espace was, for many years, the closest thing to a living room on wheels that you could buy. To call it a minivan or an MPV would, strictly speaking, be accurate but Renault brought a level of sophistication to the function and the form of the product that elevated it from the quotidian to something rather special. To understand the Espace is to start with how it was built. At the time of its launch in 1984, the majority of people carriers had been based on the underpinnings of a commercial van, designed to carry goods. The Espace, by contrast, was designed from the ground up to carry people – so you sit up high, surrounded by glass with your feet on a completely flat floor that enabled you to move around the cabin with ease. There was a depth of consideration to the design of the interior, which, by the standards of the time, was quietly luxurious. Seats could be rotated and rearranged or removed entirely. It was even possible for passengers in the rear to face one another while travelling, heightening the sense that the Espace was something more than just a way of getting to your destination. And while it wasn't a space for living, per se, like a camper van, it was definitely a space for socialising, sharing a picnic or taking a comfortable nap, stretched out while speeding along the auto route. In this, my 13th week of lockdown in London, I've been thinking about the Espace a lot. Across the world, the car is taking on a new significance, and the way I think about them is changing too. Despite the marketing rhetoric of the past decades, most cars really have been simply about getting to your destination, and not the journey there. Sure, you might have had a napa leather trim and a massaging heated and cooled seat to keep you comfy. Your tinted windows and dark chrome trim packs signalled your social status to those you passed by. And yet despite all of this, you were just on your way to the office, the supermarket, and the gym, day in, day out, and your car was the means of getting you there. But with the fragility of our existence being laid bare by COVID and our ability to safely meet in confined spaces curtailed, cars are becoming destinations in themselves, destinations that we can relocate at will to fulfil not just our functional needs, but our social, emotional, creative and spiritual ones too. In places where it's impractical to walk or cycle, cars are becoming a lockdown lifeline, allowing people to come together for graduations, art shows, movie nights and even mass, all while staying safely apart. Renault have just announced that they're killing the Espace. While its star had been waning for the better part of a decade, now more than ever, the Espace feels like it was years ahead of its time. It was a beacon of what could be achieved if you considered the needs of a group of people first, and then crafted an aesthetically pleasing form around them. And this, this is where I have a problem with so many of the autonomous concepts that have emerged over the last couple of years— Whether it's contemporary designers at Renault, or Volvo, Bentley, or Rolls-Royce, they all seem to consider the interior space of their vehicles as a transitional one. Somewhere where, sure, you might work, watch a movie, or in the case of the Volvo, go to sleep, but all while you're moving from one place to another. And their exterior forms reflect that. They still reflect the cut and thrust of a life lived at high speed. And I feel like they all miss a trick as a result. Because here's the other thing that's happened for many during lockdown. Life has slowed down. People, when they can get away from their Zoom calls and quarantinies, are rediscovering their love of nature. One, because there's less risk of transmission of the virus in wide open spaces outside of our cities. And two, because, well, it's just a nice place to be. I was looking at the sales figures for new vehicles in Germany this past week. There was a lot of red. Small car sales were down 70%, mid sized sedans down 53%, the beloved SUV down. In fact, the only category of vehicle that saw growth was the campervan. Sales up 30%. We don't know how long this particular crisis will last, but we will surely be left with the imprint of fear, constriction and isolation on one hand, and our appreciation of access to the natural world around us on the other, for years to come. In times like these, people either hunker down or head for the hills. The Renault Espace, in its ability to extend our living rooms and expand our horizons, was the kind of vehicle that allowed us to do both. And it feels like its time may come around again.
1: What you've said really resonates with me, Drew. In November 2019, I was asked by one of the biggest, possibly one of the most impactful companies in the world – to describe how most people would be living in 2030. And one of the key future trends I identified, and one that they really pushed back on, but now a couple of months later are running with, is the concept of urban nomads. That is people working out of their cars in that kind of hashtag van life thing. So driving into the city, working for a couple of months, heading back home. Everything you need in your vehicle. And before you shut this concept down like they initially did, have a good hard think about city living, city expenses, pollution, sustainability, and the new gig economy. Because right now, we're looking at the rethink of everything, and that includes the purpose of a vehicle. And I'm not just talking about homeless people here. I'm talking about people who choose to work the gig economy or just work sporadically, who refuse to sign up for crazy city rentals who want flexibility and freedom with less money stress. I'm talking about city car parks and corporate campuses reimagined with solar power, roof gardens, free Wi-Fi, group kitchens and a plug-in parking for secure sleeping. And this idea of a nomadic self-contained workforce is already happening seasonally at Amazon, for better or worse. It's also already a thing for tech people in San Francisco who can't afford the rent, there are people that have been interviewed for the local papers who sleep in their cars, shower at the 24-hour gyms that are scattered around the city. They're making maybe hundred and ten grand, but they don't want to put it into these crazy high rents that the city demands. And then in LA, there are safe car parks for the homeless car dwellers. And I think that's kind of on the way to where we're heading. Because I believe COVID-19 has jarringly reminded those who were kissing their cars goodbye that the haven of a fully enclosed, private, weatherproof, mobile space with power, comfort and now disease protection is indeed a beautiful thing. So during this research, I looked into the concept of landships populated by people with money who just want to travel, which is essentially an upmarket version of grey nomads. But the really interesting, gritty future potential for the car industry in particular is for the gig economy workers who don't want to live in a shoebox. Because people like their independence. They want their space. So I live in a cutting-edge area of the world and in the Bay Area. People seeking their fortunes or selling their companies aspire to a kitted-out Mercedes Sprinter van so they can hit the road at any time, work from a beach, sleep on a mountain. They've got headroom to stand without stooping, power on the road, power when still, often they'll have a portable solar panel they poke outside. I believe we're in the middle of a radical rethink of what a car needs to be. And your personal vehicle has suddenly become part of your resilience toolkit. So how do you face disaster squarely, protect the ones you love, and maintain a safe space while providing supplies and food back to the home? With your own resilient vehicle. COVID-19 has accelerated some massive societal disruptions that were always going to happen. I mean, we're heading into the fourth revolution, this idea of digitised world, robots, automation, machine meets man. So we were always going to see some hugely disruptive traits. But right now, with people confined to home, with disease spreading exponentially, with work being redefined, we have people asking, what is trust? What is resilience? What is home? What is work? And here is an opportunity for a fundamental rethink of what is a car, because it can be an energy source. It can be your workplace. It's the way you keep your family secure. It's the way you stay safe. And if indeed trust has fully broken down, suddenly a person who was cool with public transport doesn't want to go anywhere near anything that's communal. So here we have this opportunity for car companies to radically rethink what they can provide and give society a new type of vehicle that offers us what we're craving right now. I think this is super exciting. Coming up, Mark takes a look at what's happening for folks like him who don't own vehicles.
0: I don't own a vehicle, or well, I didn't own a vehicle, but being a futurist, I did see the pandemic coming, and something tickled me deep inside. A voice in my head said, go buy a bike. I ignored that voice. Because I'd had a bad bike accident almost 30 years ago. I lost two teeth, and I haven't really felt that much like riding a bike in all of the years since. I mean, I have from time to time, but I've never owned one. And in Sydney, there's basically no need. I can walk pretty much everywhere. I'm a walker. I like to walk. And where I can't walk, there's public transport or a taxi or ride-sharing, at least. There used to be.
1: To limit the spread of coronavirus, avoid non-essential travel where possible. While waiting for the train, stand along the platform and avoid close contact with transport staff and other passengers.
0: Things are different now. And when a fellow futurist friend of mine, Genevieve Bell, you know her, she's been on the podcast a fair bit, when she told me, apropos of nothing, that she'd bought a bike herself, I had a moment and said, you know I've been thinking about getting a bike. Well, she said, maybe you should. And so that weekend, I walked over to my local bike shop and bought myself a nice city bike, 27 speeds and disc brakes and everything I need to get myself across the city of Sydney on its rapidly expanding network of dedicated bicycle lanes. And here's the thing. I had forgotten how joyous it is to ride a bike. Having not really ridden in 30 years, I was definitely hypervigilant when I started riding. But when that relaxed, when I got used to the feeling, it was replaced with pure joy. And that happened to coincide with the lockdowns so I could ride my bike for exercise legitimately and not ever have to worry about contending with crazy Sydney drivers. Which was really the other reason I'd never owned a bike here in Australia. Because frankly, you'd have to be mad to try to share the roads here with those cars. They don't like sharing. They don't see bikes. And that makes it dangerous. But hey, for two months, no cars. It was glorious. And it turned out that Genevieve and I were the leading edge of a massive move into buying bikes during the lockdown. I remember walking past a bike shop and looking at a 30-meter line of patrons, all correctly physically distanced, waiting to get into the store to buy a bike. And that was when they still had bikes in stock. By the end of April, it was getting hard to find a bike, at least an affordable bike anywhere. But hey, I had one. And the weather was beautiful, and there were lots of chances to go outside for a ride, which was exactly the idea every other bike owner in Sydney had. And the parks, and we have lovely, huge parks in Sydney, well-suited for bike rides, those parks were now crowded with riders. So much so, it became an effort in itself to ride safely in that crush of riders. Too much of a good thing, but still... On the whole, a good thing. Whole families out for a ride, maybe for the first time in a long time. But winter was coming. And winter in Sydney, it's not freezing cold, but it's cold enough. And this year, thankfully, it's wet. None of which is really any fun on a bike. So the opportunities to bike, should the need arise, they're becoming fewer and fewer. So, do I walk? If it's raining, that's not really very appealing. So then, do I take public transport? Our public transport network here in Sydney has been very carefully measured out for social distancing with big green stickers indicating where riders should sit on the buses and on the trains. And that works well in the middle of the day. Not so well at peak hour. And more than once... I found myself wondering why that person really had to sit behind me when there were plenty of the seats available, all of them further away from me. It's a weird feeling, an anxious feeling, because we've been told to stay away from one another. But that's hard on public transport. So where I would once take public transport nearly every single day, I now use it maybe once a fortnight. I use it as little as I can get away with and only really when absolutely necessary. I'd prefer to walk or bike. And as we head into this new normal, this chronic phase of the pandemic, and people get back into their cars in huge numbers because they feel, just as I do, that public transport is only going to be used by them only when absolutely necessary. It will be just that much harder to bike, or walk where I want to go, because I will now be contending with a city that was not very long ago doing everything in its power to open itself up and take the pedestrians and put them front and center and take the bikers and put them front and center, and now needs to execute a U-turn in that plan in order to keep everyone safely distanced. We are so spun out now in our commuting, we've lost sight of the destination. Why are we doing this? Are we driving to work because we need to be in an office? Do we even need to be in an office anymore? And if we do, do we need to be in it as much as we once were? It feels as though we're so hungry for things to be back to normal that we're overshooting the mark, looking for comfort and safety and security in the passenger compartment of a vehicle rather than using this as an opportunity to reimagine why we travel, and from that reimagine how. Now Drew, Sally, Both of you have really stressed in your segments this beautiful kind of comfort that comes from the passenger compartment of the vehicle. What are we seeing? Have we really changed the definition of why we have a car to really put this idea of privacy and safety and sterility
1: front and center, Sal? Look, it's not just the passenger compartment of the car, though, Mark. This is the point. The car has suddenly, in this raging pandemic, where no one from one week to the other can tell us how it transmits and what's safe and what's not. The car is giving us a cockpit of security and personal space. And as the driver, you're now in control of being able to take your little personal, private and very safe space wherever you want. You protect it from everyone else. You don't let them get in the car. So I think it's not just being in that cocoon, it's being able to get from A to B completely safety. This is this is you're in control of your own environment at a time when everything is spiraling out of control.
2: For my side, there's been something a little delicious about the irony over the past couple of months of working with large automotive manufacturers as they transition their workers overnight to working remotely right? These are organizations which have leased their vehicles en masse to their employees. There's an enormous amount of pride associated with driving up to those factory gates every morning in your company car. And all of a sudden, overnight, the people that work for these companies are learning about the existential threat to the future of the products they're designing and building. And it's been really interesting to watch. You know, there's a, there's a level of trauma associated with this as we've shifted overnight to to working remotely. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out. And you know, the week that we're
0: recording this is the same week that Tesla became the most valuable automotive manufacturer in the world. Is that also pointing to some of the nature of the shift? That it's not just about are we using the vehicle, how we're using the vehicle, but also how we're
2: fueling the vehicle and what the prospects for that vehicle are, Drew. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I was looking at the sales figures of of e bikes uh, this week, and the revolution in electrified transportation is already here. It just doesn't have four wheels; it's got two. You know, the sales figures for these e bikes is is off, you know, they're off the charts. And I uh, I managed to inherit an e bike when I moved back to London. I hated them. I was always a very serious cyclist. And then I got on this thing the first time and it just pulled me up a hill and I thought, gosh darn it, this is the best thing since sliced bread. And the thing is, is that I'm contending
0: with the electric bikes in Sydney as well. And I actually do hate them. I would rather get the cardio of pedaling up the hill. But I can totally see that there's going to be, you're just doing the commute and you just want that help.
1: Well, you know, they're huge in the Bay Area. They're going off here. You can't get one for love or money. They're also breaking down really quickly. I've been noticing the $10,000 electric bike that my mate got the other day, his mountain bike that Marin is now too small for this bike because it goes so far, 10 grand broke down within two weeks. But you know what I see? Because I think about, Mark, you peddling away forlornly in the rain. And I think, hell no, will that ever be me in a million years? Absolutely not. Plus, we've had this conversation. I'm not changing the footwear I wear to be flat and ugly just so I can ride a freaking bike. Not going to happen. So does this mean that one of these little two-person capsules like the Renault Tweezy. Remember the little Tweezy? It's like a little roller coaster carriage that's come off the roller coaster and it's taken off on its little three wheels off through town. This idea of a smaller electric motor, still a plug-in vehicle, it can take two people and it's got some weather protection, people. Weather protection.
0: Well, and it, that it's also isolated so that it, you know it has that sense of there's a capsule here, which is also going to be part of that.
2: Yeah, and it's a safe little capsule too. You remember one of the themes we discussed a number of times in the last series was micromobility. And at the time, micromobility was electrified scooters, it was electrified bikes, and there weren't really many answers to the question of what happened when micromobility got to its upper limit. It was still sub 500 kilos, but it had four wheels. And I think perhaps what we might start to see as we try to work out the compromise between social distancing in urban environments and kind of keeping on this march towards sort of less big cars, we might start to see that explosion of these smaller kind of uh, four-wheeled vehicles that still fit the definition of micromobility, which is what the Twizy is, right? But there's another question here, which is that even
0: if we have these tiny vehicles, if they're all going into central London or central San Francisco or central Sydney, then there is no amount of parking, there is no amount of road system that are built for it because all these cities have been designed around the fact that there are subways to bring people into the center and then back out to the suburbs, subways that people don't want to use because they're now worried they're going to get infected by something when they use them. Does that actually mean that in fact the demand even for micro mobility solutions isn't what we think it should be and that the crisis facing the car makers is even greater because in fact the, the, the leaning away from from the car is going to be more intense.
1: Well, there has been a lot of um, kind of concept work around pods that go onto like a skateboard chassis, this idea of pods that pop on and off, right? So perhaps what we're now looking at is this idea of the modular pod, you're in it, and now it gets stacked onto the little rail cars and whipped into the city. It gets stacked vertically into the old car parks. I mean, if it's the case that suddenly people want their personal space protected... We can either put screens up in all of our public transport and like lose seating and do it that way and clean it like crazy or we can radically rethink what that transport looks like and we can make these little guys with tiny pods or with those tiny little wheels where they basically you drive on. It's like a car ferry, isn't it? Whips you into the city, stacks you up and there you are. So, I mean, that it it could be.
2: The thing is everything is to play for certainly within European cities at the moment. So London, London, as I said, has made you know, it's streets even more inhospitable to cars, you know, that they're closing down entire stretches of road. Um, And yet there's this awareness that the public transportation system is not going to be able to carry people safely. They're saying active transit is the way to go. It's all about walking, cycling. Uh, You know, our weather here in London is far worse than it is in Sydney. And the the city authorities basically saying to people, go hang, right? It's winter. We don't care. You're going to be safer on a bike or walking. So, there is an opportunity here for somebody smart, agile, adaptable to come up with a product that could fit within the constraints that the city has has defined, but allows people to travel in a socially distanced and more comfortable way.
0: So really then what we're seeing is there's an opportunity for co-design here, right, where we actually understand what the what the constraints are, what the needs are, and that it's possible to then find something that's a solution. But let's all be clear on this. This is not a cheap game to play. So, yes, you might be able to do it agilely, but you're still going to have to bring hundreds of millions of dollars to bear and none of the car manufacturers have that right now, right? Because how much have we seen car sales drop off in the last quarter?
2: <laughs> in China, they were down 92%. And in Europe, they've they've dropped, what, 70% or something? Right, exactly.
1: Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see if there is a surge, if there is some revenge buying. Because um, like so many things right now, the world is tumbling in all sorts of unexpected directions. And I think this realisation from so many people that, yeah, you might not have to go into the office, but... Damn it! You need to get out of the house sometimes, and maybe you want your office to be in your car. You know, but I want to throw a spanner in the works, boys, just in case you were thinking, no, no, they can all pivot to this micro mobility, and it'll all be great. I want to just point out that we have so far 39% of the world's lithium going into EV batteries, and we have um, various alternative energies, wind energy, solar energy, needing also these super efficient batteries. Um, And although that lithium is 100% recyclable, it's not recyclable enough to become another battery. And so is it the case that just when we go, we've got the solution, we're going to ramp this up, China's always going full speed ahead on EV, we're all going to follow, it's going to be great, we're going to run out of stuff, unless, of course, we go hydrogen.
0: We know that you love hydrogen. (laughs) But this, I mean, it brings up a whole other question here, because you're right. Now that the auto industry is transforming itself from petrochemical fuels, and maybe not rapidly, although one of the more interesting aspects of the pandemic was watching air pollution dramatically drop around the world, largely because of a lack of vehicle traffic, as we see that pivot maybe accelerate because of this, right – It does create a whole other level of problems that maybe we haven't actually thought quite enough about how we need to solve them so that the transition isn't a straight shot, but it's more of a bumpy ride. All right, both of you, to just sort of bring this home, are we going to be looking more for our vehicles to be that home away from home, that safe space for us? And does that mean that we're just going to go hide out in our cars when we need a breather from being locked down with the family?
1: I already do. I love it. I've got a Porsche Macan with a beige leather interior. Mate, I am in there at every opportunity. Occasionally I'll get a text going, are you sitting in the car? And I'll be like, oh, hell yes, I am. Yes, I am, because my little cocoon is really nice right now.
2: (laughs) Look, I mean, you know, people talk about the arrival of COVID as the point where everything changed. Actually, in a lot of stuff we're seeing, it's just the point at which a lot of things started to accelerate. And actually, you know, there's been evidence of people using cars as social spaces, particularly in in Asian countries for quite some time. You know, there there are car hire companies in Japan that have trouble with people renting their cars by the hour and not actually taking them anywhere. You know, they're using them as an office space. They're using them as a karaoke room. They're using them as a place to catch a nap between client meetings. And so I think maybe we're just going to see a, a, an acceleration and an intensification of, of some things that were already starting to be evident.
0: And that, I think, is probably one of the great sort of uh, statements about what the pandemic has done is it's taken some processes that were already underway and put them either into overdrive or finally put them to sleep. All right. That brings a close to this episode of The Next Billion Cars. Thank you so much, Drew and Sally, for joining us. Before we go, I want to draw our listeners' attention to a most amazing newsletter put out by Drew. Looking out is possibly the best thing you'll need to read each month about the future of the automobile. Drew, how do listeners get their hands on looking
2: out? you head to automobility.substack.com. That's automobility.substack.com and you can sign up there.
0: Excellent. And we will put a link to that on the
2: website.
0: The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark
2: Pesci, Sally Dominguez, and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Darcy Thompson.
0: For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci. Andrew
1: Smith. And Sally Dominguez, thanking you for listening and wishing you lots and lots of safety in the months ahead.